What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. This episode is brought to you by Skinny Pop Popcorn. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Oh, so light and crunchy. Skinny Pop Original Popcorn is the snack you've been searching for. Made with just three simple ingredients, popcorn kernels, sunflower oil, and salt. Snacking never felt or tasted so good. Perfectly popped, endlessly delicious. Give yourself permission to snack and pick up Skinny Pop Original Popcorn today. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. This episode is brought to you by the Inspire Collection by Kalia. Ladies, your workouts are about to get an upgrade. The new Inspire leggings by Kalia are exactly what you want when it comes to activewear. It's their most versatile collection yet. They look good, feel good, and stay put. Using Lycra Adaptive Fiber, it compresses and molds to the body like a second skin. And it's unbelievably stretchy, so you can move however you want. Shop the Inspire Collection by Kalia now, exclusively at Dick's Sporting Goods. Welcome to the Radio Times podcast with me, Kellyanne Taylor. In this series, I sit down on the Radio Times sofa with a different celebrity guest every week to talk all things telly. What do they watch? Where do they watch it? And who do they watch with? Each week, we glimpse into my guest's life as seen through the prism of TV and from the vantage point of their sofas. We also delve into their own glittering careers on screen. This week's guest is Richard Curtis, the man behind all of your favourite rom-coms about time, love actually, four weddings and a funeral and Notting Hill. Also under his belt is some of the greatest British telly, Mr Bean, The Vicar of Dibley and Blackadder. In this episode, Richard talks about his Love Island obsession, the tragedy of his acting career, working with Rowan Atkinson, where the ideas for his rom-com stem from, and why Hugh Grant wouldn't play him in a biopic. Notting Hill, I used to drive across the bridge to my friend in Charing Cross Road and be thinking, wow, wouldn't it be great if I turned up with Madonna? I wonder what they'd say. And so uh, I lived out that that fantasy without it ever being true. So I think there is an element of wish fulfillment in them, definitely. Plus, he reflects on his favourite comic relief moments, the charity he co-founded, which has raised £2 billion, and why this year's Red Nose is revolutionary. Richard Curtis, welcome to the Radio Times podcast. Very good to be here. Now, as a big fan of telly, tell me, first and foremost, what is the view from your sofa? Um, I would say the view from my sofa is constantly interrupted by cats. <laughs> That's probably the truth of the matter. We have far too many animals. They're jealous. 
they don't like us watching TV. They'd rather we paid attention to them. Oh, bless. What have you enjoyed watching most recently on television? God, I'm watching so much telly at the moment. Um, a bit back, I thought Big Boys, that Jack Rook's Channel 4 series. I watched one one night and then the other five the night after. Really loved that. Um, my friend Donald Gleason was in a show with Steve Carell called The Patient. Oh, I've heard um, amazing things about yeah, that. Yeah, I really loved that. I liked um, Happy Valley as much as everyone else. So, uh, you know, I've been... I've been busy watching Shrinking. What's that on? Uh, it's new on Apple. Apple. It's got gonna... Jason Siegel and Harrison Ford in it. What kind of genre are you attracted to? Many genres. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. No, I mean, I like a, I like a, a, I love Slow Horses, for instance. I've enjoyed that. So I like a sort of thriller that keeps me going. Mm. I mean, the I'll probably talk about them later, but I adore. Sky Portrait Artist of the Year and The Great British Bake Off and often Love Island. And then I do quite like the half-hour slots of comedy. So I started watching Loot the other day, which is the one with Maya Rudolph about sort of Melinda Gates, as it were. Yes, so in, the, I, in the big mansion with yeah. the ridiculous cars outside. The thing I don't find myself doing much on telly is watching whole films. Interesting. Kind of half an hour or an hour is much more suitable. I, I want to come back to you. You said um, that you were a fan of Love Island, which I love to hear. But as someone who writes about love for a living and comedy and human relationships, what does that series highlight to you about the state of love in, in our current climate? Well, I mean, look, the, the funny thing is and why I, there were a couple of big brothers when I saw it happening to actually sort of, I know there's a lot of falsity in these shows, but you also do see people falling in love and both the lovely and the painful side of it. And that's mm. kind of a weird thing. When else in life have we had close, you know, you hear about your friend fell in love with this person is going out with them, but you don't get to watch it. So I have been intrigued by the kind of reality of the moments when you see it happening in conversation and then you see them tortured by doubt and then... You see it fulfilled. So I, I, I love those shows. They really show mm. love in action. Um, I mean, much more convincingly than my films do. <laughs> I think many people would disagree there. But I do think that the contestants forget about the cameras. I don't think, you know, people are like, I know people maybe come in with an agenda or whatever. But I think actually over eight weeks, you can't keep that up. No, I mean, in the same way, when we watch it, we forget about the edits. So we keep thinking, oh, look, he said that, but he never said that. But he mm. might have said that 50 times. They just edited it out because it was boring. So, yeah, I can imagine that if you're being watched, you you give up pretty quick on self-consciousness. Who controls the remote in your household? Do you know, it probably is me. I'm more committed. <laughs> I'm more, look, the kids, uh, you know, are gone now, but they didn't like watching... TV with us. I remember one great moment when my son come down, came upstairs and said, let's watch The Inbetweeners. We'll watch it downstairs, you watch it upstairs. <laughs> um, they they didn't want to sit next to us while all that stuff was going on. Um, so, and then I'm just more committed than Emma, who I live with, is. What's the TV series that you return to time and time again? Well, the funny thing is, I'm not a repeat viewer. 
I always find it very odd when people say, oh, I read Middlemarch once a year. And I think, I know what happens in Middlemarch. I hate going to, hate going to Shakespeare plays. I know what happens. Othello kills his wife. You know, it's done. So I, I don't think I watch things again at all. I am, as it were, very committed to running series. As it were. I think I've watched every episode of yeah. Bake Off and Sky Portrait Starters of the Year. So I'm committed to the format, but I'm not quite sure I see the point of watching anything again. The only time I recently remember watching something was some friends and I got together and watched the whole of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy again. So maybe and if you've left people, it. people again, exactly, left it for a long... And I watched, there's this extraordinary bit of TV called Hymat, which was a sort of 26-hour series of German films, which I watched when I was 20, and my son and I watched it during lockdown, and that was fantastic. But I, I don't watch, like, Friends a lot or Dad's Army a lot or anything. I don't go back. What do you think makes extraordinary TV? I mean, look, just a million things. Uh, I think, you know, I... I, I you know, sometimes it's just the quality of the jokes. Sometimes it's the quality of the performances. Uh, I'm, I'm just, I feel so lucky to live in this generation where I can mm. watch, you know, Succession, which is so unbelievably exciting yeah. and where I got to watch Brideshead and where I can see the landing on the moon. Yeah. What's your first TV memory? I think I was thinking about that. I think my first TV memory, because I was raised originally in the Philippines and Sweden, where therefore we got no English TV. I've always mm. been very aware of not having shared the sort of those, the Jack and Ori side of my friend's memories. So most of my memories were kind of, I remember Robin Hood, the old black and white Robin Hood, where like they, they only had one glade. They used to ride around and they'd always end up you know, between the same six trees. And I remember lots of cowboy shows. There was one called Bonanza um, about a stormy family. And there was a bit of Batman and Lucy Ball, actually. I watched a lot of Lucille mm. Ball, a lot of Dick Van Dyke when I was young. So it was a popular American entertainment was were my memories until I started watching TV in the UK when I was about 10. It was that? When you were at school, that was when my parents moved here. Yeah. Okay. And what what were your first TV memories on British telly? I mean, it is basically top of the pops. That's the embarrassing <laughs> thing. I remember I I went for one of those jobs. There was a kind of general trainee job at the BBC, and I went after I'd left university. I applied for that, and they said, "What do you what do you watch on TV?" And my mind went completely blank. <laughs> And I said, well, look, I, you know, Top of the Pops is really good. And I think ABBA have invented a new art form in their pop videos. I did not get the job. <laughs> so, and then I then I remember watching some comedy when I was young. Watched, I did watch a lot of Dad's Army. And then the next thing that really, you know, sort of seriously affected me was Monty Python, which I watched religiously and certainly when I was 14 a third of all conversation with my friends was simply us repeating lines nice. from those sketches I think that's teenage years though yeah you're just back and forth on on the telly that's that's on I mean 
lucky you grew up with that. Mine was Waterloo Road, which brilliant. Well, here we go. Look, I, I asked my son Jake. I said, "Look, for me it was um, Python. For you, it was the Mighty Boosh." He said, "What? What is the thing now in comedy?" And he said, "Memes." He said, "It's not a TV show at all." Yeah. Just where you used to sit, you know, eating fish and chips and saying, "It is an ex parrot." They will be looking at their phones and looking at the funny thing that day. I so know. I think things are are shifting. Although my kids are very keen on Atlanta. What's that? It's the Donald Glover American TV show. Yeah, that's that's their holy grail. When did you get the idea of wanting to write for television? Um, I actually read that you wrote for your school magazine. I did. I used to write articles. I mean, there's a little tragedy here, which is that I thought I was going to be an actor because I was the one at my school who could remember the lines, so I was often cast as the lead. And then when I got to university, it turned out I had the blandest face in the world and I was always (laughs) cast as sort of third gentleman. So I, I had to resort to comedy to get on stage at all, writing stuff myself. And then within six months, I bumped into Rowan, who was clearly a genius, and I was, you know, deeply ordinary. So I started writing for him. And then when he got his first job when we left university, I wrote for him on TV. So it was like so many people's lives, a sort of stumble into your future rather than I want to be a television writer. Yeah. You know, here I come. Were you always funny? I was at school. I was what they call a groys. <laughs> a groys was a person who worked too hard. Um, I was always quite studious. But I think when I started writing, I, 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 my, that's where my instincts went. And then, as I say, when I arrived at university and it was obvious I couldn't be tragic, comic was the only outcome. So I, I didn't think of myself as a particularly uh, funny person. And who knows, maybe maybe not even today. <laughs> I, care, I care a lot about the world. That's why I do comic relief. When you met Rowan Atkinson, did you have any idea how important that friendship was going to be to your career? No. I mean, I tell you what, it was self-evident. He was astonishing when I first met him. The first thing he ever did was come out on a stage dressed in a pair of pyjamas and without saying a word, he recommended a piece of paper he was holding to the audience for seven minutes. I mean, he was, he was, you know, just born that way. Mm. So... I kind of thought it would be odd if he wasn't, you know, a, a comedy genius like Charlie Chaplin and everything, everything like that. So I knew he'd be very successful. You know, the the kind of later success of my films, I would say, has come as a as a mighty surprise. How did you first get your foot in the door when it came to writing? You went with well, Rowan. that was it. We Rowan was hired to do this show called Not the Nine Court News, and I was his kind of house writer. So I started writing for that, particularly writing a lot of the stuff he did. And then when that was over, we decided to do a sitcom, and so we did Blackadder. So certainly, I was hanging on tight to Rowan's <laughs> coattails for the first decade. Did you ever have a career backup plan in case things didn't work out? Let me tell you a terrible story. So we were in the <laughs> West End. 
Rowan was doing a show. It was a two-man show that he called a one-man show because I was on stage for 50 minutes, but so poor. And he had all the funny lines. And David Bowie came to see the show and came backstage, and I was in the room with Rowan. And Bowie walked in and said, you know, Rowan, that was amazing. And then Rowan said, and of course, this is Richard. And he had David had no idea who I was. He'd been watching me for an hour. I'd actually been sitting in front of him on a stage, but I'd made no impression. Oh, no. Whatsoever. And so he actually congratulated me on the music. He said, I thought the music was great because the the pianist was behind a screen and he assumed he would remember the face of the person on stage. So I must be the guy on the keyboard. But, you know. Never mind. I never bought another one of his records again. <laughs> Good. Silent, silent resistance. Yeah. We like it. Were your parents and your family keen for you to, to go into this path? Uh, not especially. Um, my mum was a gorgeous woman, and I think she spotted that there is a hint of cruelty. She was just full of joy, and I think she could spot that comedy meant being intermittently offensive. Mm. So um, it wasn't, and my dad was a very conservative sort of, it was a small C businessman. And he said, if you don't make any money after a year, give it a go. But you have to then join the marketing department of Unilever. And and we got the commission for Not the Nine O'Clock News just in time. Um, so it wasn't of, I mean, actually, they enjoyed it and thought it was fun afterwards. But one of the strange things about working in TV is that nobody ever rings you after your shows go out. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. I'm in a period of emotional people. I saw all the, oh, I don't care crap. A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm going to steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Wing, ready PG-13. May be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Paramount+. Plus. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Ah. <sighs> Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home, too. Shop Blinds.com now and save 40% site-wide. 40% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. You always think they will. You think, well, yeah. you know, because in the old days, 15 million people would be watching Blackadder. And you wait, the show's over, you think someone's going to call. Give you a ring. But the only person who ever called was my mum. Uh, and she always said the same thing, which was, wasn't Rowan looking handsome? <laughs> and, and it was always just about, <laughs> it was just about looks. She, I don't think she laughed once. <laughs> 
why you can't win them all. Let's talk about Blackadder because that is obviously one of the most successful TV shows. You know, it's if you look at the polls, it's always in the top ten. You know, it, it's got a real legacy. And actually, anyone that I have on the show always says when I say, you know, what what TV do you come back to time time again? What do you enjoy? It's always Blackadder is up there. So when you're writing a series like Blackadder, are you aware of its brilliance? Well, I, I um, I've got a theory that almost every sitcom you watch, if you watch really carefully, there are two very good episodes, two kind of okay ones and two slightly dodgy ones. It's very hard to get them all good. So yeah. I, I, I I can still sniff that with Blackadder. But no, it was a very strange thing. You know, we did this first series, which was, you know, very expensive and on film and that wasn't very well regarded. And so when Ben Elton joined and we did the second one, we could feel that it was more fun, but we were kind of on on our defensive and because of this weird thing i remember once walking around in in when when blackadder was on there were no viewing figures or if there were viewing figures nobody told you so Mm. while it was on i used to walk around the streets and see how many people were watching us on the telly through the windows through the windows just see okay that's one for us oh god one for them oh two three and stuff so I, i don't think we we could tell it was doing well. I, I, the fact that it's lasted so long, I think, is... I mean, I think it's got something to do with the fact that because it's set in the past, it doesn't date mm-hmm. in the same way that lots of shows... I mean, it was always 500 years out of date, if you see what I mean. So, yeah. no, it was a very tough show to do. There were a lot of clever people working on it. We argued about every word. So... As it were, we did sweat blood for it, but the fact it's lasted is a surprise and a, and a joy. We didn't, we weren't sitting there thinking, this is a masterpiece. We were just thinking, oh God, this is hard. And what's interesting is, I obviously made stars of you all, and and even for me, you know, as someone who writes about television, TV writers generally, and even directors, aren't that familiar, as in you wouldn't see their face and and instantly recognise them. But you are, and I wondered if that happened perhaps around Blackadder. Do you think that was the the moment you were kind of thrust into public consciousness? No, I don't think so. I think, I mean, if that's happened, which in some ways I hope it hasn't, it will be more to do with people kind of eventually clustering together my films and saying you know the all the romantic films form a, yeah, form a group of films so uh, no I was I was completely and delightfully anonymous and particularly since my co-writer was Ben who was famous it was sort of mm. written by Ben and someone else. Can we talk about British comedy and it there's definitely a uniqueness there. What do you what do you think that is? There are so many types. I think it's I find it hard to say, well, this constitutes, you know, so even amongst my own stuff, Mr. Bean is silent and foolish and Best Blackadder Blackadder is very, you know, highly raw and conversational. And, you know, the difference between the mighty Boosh and the office is True. is massive. And when we started Not the Nine O'Clock News, we wrote it specifically to be completely different from Python. So I, I don't know that there is a 
thing that is British comedy. I think one of the great things about British comedy is that there's been a lot of independence. So in some cases, it hasn't been a sort of squeezed into, you know, big laugh formats in the way that American TV used to be. So it was able to to roam around. So I'm kind of more interested in the spread of it rather than the um, similarities. It's so interesting. My my mum is South African and her and my dad moved here when they were 18 and they went to see a play and it was a comedy and my mum did not understand any of it, the kind of humour. So I always wonder as well if there's this kind of, I don't know, the things that we also find funny perhaps are are different to other things, but maybe that's about accessibility and about, you know, laughing at parts of your own culture that perhaps, you know, she hadn't seen at that time. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I think there must be some very... I mean, has anyone outside England ever liked the Vicar of Dibley? I don't know. But you know, the weird <laughs> thing about the the weird thing about our films is that, you know, when we made four weddings, we assumed it would, you know, have two weeks at the Curzon Mayfair and then it it made money all over the world because it was sort of about weddings yeah. and funerals. So I think that uh I I think when things are funny in some ways, they should you know, spread. And then we have the great advantage of being in English, which I'm presuming if there are any great German comedies, they don't have. Why did you move from writing for TV to film or, you know, comedies into rom-coms? I mean, I don't know. I did decide. I think I was, I did love a lot of particular films. There were the ones I always sort of remember is, the Bill Forsyth films, Local Hero and Gregory's Girl, I thought they were amazing. There was an American film called Diner and another one called Breaking Away. So there was a bunch of sort of semi-autobiographical movies about love. And I was that was a subject on which I was nuts. I've always, I just went mad repeatedly with love, you know, when I was young. And so it was like a subject I was very interested in and I saw a way of doing it. And also I did not see a way of doing it on TV. You know, the thing about working with other people, which I did do on the sitcoms, was you could agree about everything apart from what was moving or romantic. So we didn't even try. Mm. I mean, apart from the end of Blackadder, there's like no emotion in there at all. So I think I thought if I'm going to write about love, and I love lots of movies like that. The way to do it is through film, not not on on TV. Would you describe yourself as a romantic? It's tricky. Uh, I I don't know. I was. That's kind of it's an odd word, isn't it? Romantic because yeah. I don't know what romantic means. Uh, you know, does romantic mean you think things are going to turn out well? In which case, no, because <laughs> I was so spectacularly unsuccessful in love you know, for most, for half my life. So I think I I was over-interested. I mean, I first fell in love with a girl called Jill when I was four, then Tracy when I was seven, then Julie Andrews, then, <laughs> you know, a series. So I've I've had a lot of, it, it's, it was a big chunk of my head. So it yeah. was the logical thing to to focus on. Where do your ideas come from? Is it, you know, are you sat there thinking about all of the potential 
loves that you didn't have that and think okay is this i mean there's a bit of that there's a bit i mean the tall guy my first film was just basically based on you know in that film um jeff goldblum plays rowan sidekick which is what i was doing in my life and then goes to have a injection for hay fever and i've always had those so i mean a lack of imagination in my plotting is something that you know my family point out regularly and for weddings, often it's about things that did not happen. So exactly that. So I remember being at a wedding. There was a girl. We had a dance. I thought, that this is heaven. And then she said, where are you staying tonight? And instead of saying, wherever you're staying, I said, no, I'm going back with my friend John. We're going to play Boggle. And I went back with my friend John and we played Boggle and... I never saw her, so I kind of imagined what would have happened. And, and you know, Notting Hill, I used to drive across the bridge to my friend in, in um, you know, in Charing Cross Road and be thinking, wow, wouldn't it be great if I turned up with Madonna? I wonder what they'd say. And so uh, I lived out that, that fantasy without it ever being true. So I think there is an element of wish fulfillment in them, definitely. Is there a rom-com that you have seen that you didn't write that you wish you had? Oh, God. I mean, so many. Um, recently, I I mean, not... I love Worst Person in the World, which isn't really a rom-com, but is amazing. I love The Big Sick. I love 500 Days of Summer. I love all of Nef- Nora Ephron's films. You know, I, 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 there, are, there are a lot of them. The Worst Person in the World is one of the best things I think I've ever seen. Yeah, it's an amazing film. I don't think it gets enough attention. If we don't, if, if we don't take anything away from this, except that everyone should buy a red nose designed by the great Sir Johnny Ive, which we'll talk about later. Um, yeah, watch Worst Person in the World. And there's another film called Like Crazy, which I don't know if you've seen with I Felicity haven't. Jones and Anton Yelchin. Not got many jokes in it, but in terms of the texture of love, that's a fantastic film too. I'll give that a watch next. Why do you think people love rom-coms? Because I would say yours really do capture your, you know, Notting Hill, Love Actually, this real essence of late 90s, early 2000s. Why do, why do you think we love rom-coms? I mean, I, I never know the answers to the real, really good questions about <laughs> what I do. Why do I write them? Um, I... I I think it's, you know, there is an inevitability in the plot, which I th- I think they can be very comforting. I think when they're good, they're funny, and that's great. And then when they're romantic, there's an inevitable end, and it's a nice end, but you've got to go through all these troubles. It's nicer than finding out who murdered seven people in Chicago. <laughs> You know, it's it's, it's a it's a nice plot, and it's also and actually, I think one of the things is, it's like a, a lot of people are really interested in the subject. I mean, I always find the obsession with you know westerns or serial killers or taking over Mars a bit odd because not many people are very interested in those issues, but you know, a huge number of people are in millions in love yeah. in London right now. So maybe it's partly because it's sort of on point in terms yeah. of where their where their minds are at. What do you think it takes for someone to play a romantic lead? And I'm I'm just thinking on the spot here of you know when you're writing 
these characters? Do you see someone in your head? And I, and I don't mean a, a particular actor, perhaps, but what do you think captures the essence of the of the romantic lead? Because often yours are quite um, a, a little bit dorky, very gentle, I would say, and chivalrous. <laughs> I don't know, but then Billy Crystal was wasn't any of those things in in When Harry Met Sally. So that's so um, true. Uh, I think you know. I think you've got to get the right actor to say the lines. I mean, when we auditioned for Four Weddings, Hugh Grant was the fifty first person we saw, and there were there was literally not one laugh in the first fifty. You know, it's a strange magical thing of sort of charm and being able to be funny even though you're trying to show your emotions so I think it's uh, I think it's quite a specific thing for actors to be able to do and I think you have to look very hard to get the right person for the right part and I think in in rom-coms that uh that don't work as well I suspect it's because they say we've got these two actors let's quickly knock up a story and they're not necessarily right for that one and they don't have the right chemistry and everything like that so I think like most things you know if you really feel it and if you work very hard on it you've got a much greater chance of it working than if it's formulaic I mean anything when you become too formulaic it's likely not to succeed. Do you think if there was a rom-com about your life written exactly as you've lived it that Hugh would play you well no because Hugh just could sleep with anyone he wanted to and I I couldn't sleep with anyone so (laughs) and on that note why don't we come on to talk about comic relief that's better I think tell me how did comic relief come about well, it was, you know, and if we're talking about the importance of TV, the most important television show in my life was Live Aid. So I watched that TV show. I thought, is there anything I can do apart from give some money? And I thought, well, I know lots of comedians. Can we get together and try and raise some money? Then we did a stage show, which the BBC showed an edit of, which is what people used to do in those days. And then Lenny and I had a conversation that night, literally after the show, saying this is so bizarre that when TV people try and raise money for charity, they go back on stage, whereas we've got a much larger audience in TV. So we thought, let's see if we can get the BBC to put on a sort of telethon, which is really based on comedy, not on just passing the time, which, um, you know, a lot of them were very much entertainment specials. So we got permission to do that. And then there was a meeting where we said we better have a symbol. And someone said, how about a red nose? And then we thought we better sell the red nose. And then the first one we did was absolute chaos, but it made 15 million pounds. And so we felt we ought to do a second one. And now we're on our, you know, 19th. And you first wrote about Red Nose Day for Radio Times 35 years ago. Oh, my God. Um, and you said in an article a few a few years ago now, uh, when my hair was still orange and Hugh Grant was still young. Um, but the longevity of the charity, the amount of money it has raised, what impact has the public's generosity had? The, the You know, the reason we, we've now raised, I think, getting near to, with you take into account the money also we've made in America, about sort of two billion, getting close to two billion pounds, I think. And 
I still break that down into how much difference a pound can make. You know, that is the 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 thing. So um, there are statistics saying we've helped 8 million people or something like that. But the thought is that a malaria net, which can and does save lives, is now only two pounds, that a vaccine can be 17p, that now, you know, when families are so struggling and need a food bank, that if you give one quid to a food bank, it buys 10 quids worth of food, which can feed a family, you know, mm. for a week. So I, I think I, I just absolutely still convinced that anyone who gives us cash on the night or buying a nose or anything like that is in this magical position of directly handing money to someone whose life is very hard and it, and it can make a instant or actually long-term and decisive change. Yeah. And I want to talk about how has comic relief evolved over the years. So when I was growing up, Red Nose Day was the best day of the year because it meant you could wear your pyjamas to school or you got to wear your own clothes rather than school uniform. But does it have to keep changing with the times? And I, I wonder that not only in terms of how you raise money, uh, but perhaps the challenges that people have to do and also where the money goes. Yeah, it really, it really is evolving. I mean, from the sort of creative part, one of the joys of comic relief is that wonderful new creative things keep happening. So as it were on the show, we don't endlessly have to do, you know, a, a men behaving badly special because this year we can do a ghost special or a mm. traitors. We're doing a, a sketch this in a couple of weeks about the traitors, which I think is going to be, God, I can't remember if that's been announced. Anyway, <laughs> uh, you know, so things change. And when, you know, one Direction were number one, they did a single for us. And when mm. J.K. Rowling was writing the book, she wrote two little books for us. So it can keep changing because there's different content out there in the ether of the yeah. entertainment. Um, as terms of where the money goes, I think that evolves. I mean, in some ways we are still, we've done domestic violence for a very long time. We're probably focusing now. I mean, this year there were various crises to do with Ukraine and to do with Turkey. And there's actually a terrible famine brewing in Somalia. So, you know, we can be there for those crises. I think people realize now that I work in the UK, particularly sort of low level, you know, help with the financial crisis is really helpful. So, you know, we have a brilliant grants team. They watch out for maximum areas of need and they move in that direction. Yeah. So I think we're very fast and reactive. And in terms of where the money comes in from, I mean, I think that's, you know, the exciting and biggest shift that's probably coming. I think we'll make more and more money digitally. Yeah. I mean, for instance, the Red Nose, which I'm obsessed that people should order because it's so brilliant. Where can people get that? They can get it at Amazon. They go to Amazon. Well, I don't know what, what you know, Amazon.co.uk. Yeah, and type in I would say nose. order now while stocks last. Uh, it's this beautiful object devised by Sir Johnny Ive, who designed, mm. you know, the iPhone. Uh, it's really kind of miraculous. It's £2.50. Every inch of profit we make from it is going to make change people's lives. Uh, so I think that we will shift the way that we earn money as the years as the years go by. But always, I think, spending it as 
brilliantly as we can and always trying to keep sort of it fun. I mean, for me, comic relief is letting people know that other people's lives are really hard and then telling you that you can do something about that and yeah. you can have fun while you're doing it. That's kind of the triple whammy. So obviously we see when, when we tune in, we get to see kind of the top of British drama, comedy, talent, all come together, collaborate and produce not just something for a charity, but something that has required lots of time, effort, the best that they can produce. And I wonder, you know, that's gone from something that I grew up with, the Catherine Tate and David Tennant um, sketch to Vicar of Dibley special episodes and recently had normal people meeting Fleabag, yeah. which is obviously, again... I mean, brilliant, brilliant telly. Um, you know, how do those sketches come about and how do you recruit people to do those? Well, that's the great thing about the fact that, you know, we started with such a bang so everybody knew about it. So it always really happens that you get in touch with everyone who's done something wonderful. And when they say yes, their kind of pride and excellence kicks in. You know, that's sort of the way it goes. So we did a great line of duty sketch, you know, with um, Lee Mack being questioned. And that was because, uh, you know, their team decided that they wanted to do something fantastic. Uh, you know, and when and all those years ago I got in touch with Sasha Baron Cohen, you know, he said, um, I'll do it if you can get me the Queen or Margaret Thatcher, or I'll compromise on David Beckham if that's the best you can do. You know, but then he really took it seriously. He planned, he refused to meet the Beckhams beforehand. And then, you know, there's a James Corden sketch, which starts with George Michael, and then they're picking who should be the next person to make an appeal film, and Gordon Brown and Paul McCartney and everyone. So it's really that you find people who are at the top of their game, and then you say to them, do it brilliantly. And they do. And it's not that much work because in the end, everything's only seven minutes long. Mm. So it tends to be one day's filming, everyone, you know, working very hard. So the the main thing is just having your eye on what's great and having the nerve to ask people yeah. to do stuff. And what can viewers look forward to this year? So we do know that Blackadder will be returning for a special. There's well, wait a minute. There's 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 a there's a a, a manifestation of part of Blackadder <laughs> coming up, but I think it is going to be funny and special. There's yeah, this ghost special. I love ghosts and Kylie Minogue's in that. There's a Love Island special where we're <laughs> actually flying out to Love Island with. I'm not sure it's announced, but with a comedian of the very highest value. Uh, who's going to be in the actual house in an actual pair of horrible swimming trunks. Uh, so those are some of the bits. And then we've actually got a really interesting thing on BBC Two, which was the first time ever since the Big Brother that we did about 20 years ago, we've got permission to re-show that footage. So we got a kind of best of, of that. Um, I think it's called When Comic Relief Did Big Brother and It Really Kicked Off. Um, <laughs> So I think there are, I'm, I'm quite, and then there are a couple I can't announce, but I would say switch on and I think it's going to be an evening full of, full of delights. Looking back for you, what do you think have been your kind of top five comic relief moments? And that could be anything from sketches to stories that really stuck with you. 
Well, he did, you know, I, could, I probably got five of each. I mean, I did love Sasha and the Beckhams. I did love the James Corden one. There was an extraordinary live moment. Billy Connolly said, if we make a million in the next hour, I'll run naked around Piccadilly Circus. And then he did. And <laughs> then an hour later in the studio, we got 100 men to put on Billy Connolly beards and charge onto the stage. And I remember we didn't tell the hosts. And that was that was a good moment. You know, but then many things for me uh, to do with emotions, you know, all the early emotion of of Lenny when he used to, you know, travel to make the films and the kind of naturalness. There was a lovely bit where he was just, he was trying to do a serious piece to camera with a girl in Ethiopia and they both just kept getting the giggles. So what we just showed was him laughing and suddenly you thought... These are real people. This is not a kind of tragic scenario. These are brilliant people who put in a unbelievably bad situation. David Tennant was extraordinary when he was making films about malaria. I remember Victoria Wood spending 24 hours just sitting on the floor in a house of a man who was taking care of his wife who had dementia. So there have been lots of very moving moments as well as the funny ones. And then actually some amazing musical moments. I remember Adele singing Make You Feel My Love and us making something like four million pounds in eight minutes because it was just the perfect song at the perfect time. And she said at the beginning, don't listen to me, just give money while I sing. So it's been a, you know, it's always hard to make, but it's always got huge moments of delight and surprise. And I'm, you know, my gratitude to the celebrities who do it, but most of all to the public who watch and give. I hope they get their money's worth, but it's a a, a wonderful demonstration of people's fundamental kindness and generosity and empathy. Well, on that note, Richard Curtis, thank you very much for coming on the Radio Times podcast. I love the Radio Times. <laughs> They, the very first one we ever did, Red Nose Day, that was the first time that the Radio Times was going to have competition. You, you're too young to know, but the, the newspapers didn't put the TV listings in. And then suddenly they decided they all would. Someone from the Radio Times get, came to me and said, if we can have five Red Nose pictures on five different editions, we'll give you £250,000. And that's the miracle. So we got all the Radio Times profits um, that year. That's the miracle of Comet Relief. Suddenly magic money magically changing lives. But thank you very much. That was, that was a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to the Radio Times podcast. We hope you enjoyed the show. If there's a guest you'd love to hear us interview, a programme you've heard us talk about that has marked your life, or any other thoughts you'd like to share, please do write in to podcast at radiotimes.com. Please also remember to rate, review and subscribe. Listener.